Hi, welcome to War Orthodoxy. This is a channel dedicated to Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox alike. Today, I'm joined by Eugene Webb. Eugene is a professor emeritus at the University of Washington, Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies. He holds a PhD in Comparative Literature from Columbia University, an MA in English Literature from Columbia, and a BA in Philosophy from UCLA. He has chaired programs in Comparative Religion, European Studies, and much more. So, um, Eugene, if you don't mind, then could you please tell us about a bit about your background and uh, some of those key events in your life that you have formed you? Well, I guess one thing I, I could start off by telling you is that I've had an extremely unusual career. Mm -hmm. uh, because as you can see, I, I majored in philosophy as an undergraduate. That was first drawn to philosophical questions. Um, but uh, one of the things that got me interested in this was reading Thomas Merton's The Seven-Story Mountain uh, when I was, um, actually I just graduated from high school and I was working in a bookstore in Hollywood in the back room. I unpacked books that came from publishers and I packed up unsold books to send them back to publishers. Um, and uh, I was given the privilege of borrowing books. So one of the books I saw that looked interesting was this book by Thomas Merton. Uh, and reading that got me interested in Thomas Aquinas. <clears throat> so uh, I, I was interested in philosophy, but at UCLA where I studied, uh, it was a very uh, strongly uh, logical positivist school. Uh, and at the time that I started there, they didn't have anybody who taught medieval philosophy. Uh, so I hired a former high school teacher of mine who had been a Dominican monk. I didn't know that. In fact, uh, he was a renegade Dominican monk. He had jumped over the wall and got married and was excommunicated. Mm -hmm. I didn't know any of that story until years later. But at any rate, uh, I knew that he knew a lot about Aquinas because he talked about him all the time. So I hired him. Uh, for the summer between my freshman and sophomore years to read Aquinas in Latin uh, five days a week uh, for um, eight, five days a week, eight hours a day for 10 weeks. Uh, so I was, really had an immersion in Aquinas with this guy who uh, had been a Dominican and he had essentially gone into the Dominican order when he was 14. So all he knew was what he learned while he was studying to be a priest in the order. And uh, that meant that he really didn't know much or much else. Uh, the the <laughs> modern world was foreign to him. He considered the Middle Ages to be home. So I, I actually had a kind of an immersion in the Middle Ages that summer. Wow. <laughs> uh, I, I actually lived with him and his wife during the week, during the five days a week we were studying. So that had a big influence on me, uh, learning Aquinas. On the other hand, uh, there was a problem. I was actually very drawn to, I, I, would, I did not grow up as a Christian. Uh, I was drawn to Christianity through uh, reading Merton, also reading T.S. Eliot, W.H. Auden. Um, they also had a big influence on me, uh, but um, I was attracted to it. But I found Aquinas' treatment of the Trinity completely unsatisfactory. It was just very abstract and uh, artificial to me. Uh, I didn't know quite why, but it, I mean, I didn't know quite why it was so, 
how artificial it was. And it took me many, it took me decades really to get to the bottom of the problem. But, um, and that's of course what my last book was about, In Search of the Triune God. Uh, but uh, I, I was actually thinking about getting baptized, but I, I backed off uh, because uh, Aquinas's treatment of the doctrine of the Trinity just didn't make sense to me. Uh, so I withdrew, but that had a big influence. I learned a lot from studying Aquinas, and I continued to think about his thought uh, years later. And you may have seen that I talked about him extensively in um, in the worldview and mind. Um, but uh, that was one big influence. Another, I would say, another big influence on me was traveling in Asia. Uh, See, I grew up in the 1950s. I graduated from college in 1960. Uh, in the summer of 1959, between my junior and, and senior years in college, I, uh, I worked during the first half of the summer. And then the money that I made during the first half of the summer, I used uh, to travel to Asia. And uh, I spent, uh, I think, about six or seven weeks there. I spent a whole month in Japan, but I also went to uh, the Philippines and Hong Kong and uh, Thailand and uh, Cambodia uh, and Vietnam uh, before going to, uh, to um, uh, Japan. Uh, and I really, I really fell in love with Asia. So. Uh, that trip had, had a really big influence on me. One of your questions was, how did I get inter interested in international studies? And I would say, par well, partially, of course, I had already, I'd, been, I'd spent the summer of, um, between my, my freshman and sophomore, no, between my sophomore and junior years in college, I, I went to Europe. So I'd seen a, a fair amount of the world. And I, I, I mentioned this was in the 1950s, which is significant because in, in the 1950s, the American dollar was very, very strong, and currencies almost everywhere else were very weak in comparison with the dollar. So if you had uh, just a, a very ordinary, not even very large amount of money, you could, you could live like a prince anywhere in the world. Um, so as I said, I, I worked the first half of the summer there and went, then went to Japan and, and had a private car and driver and stayed in first-class hotels everywhere. I could never do that again. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, not like that. <laughs> it, it, when my, I went back with my wife and children in 1980, and we were we were shocked. My wife had actually spent uh, a year and a half living in Japan. She's Japanese American, and uh, she she was a student at Stanford and went there and studied at Stanford's center in Japan uh, as an undergraduate, majoring Japanese. <clears throat> but uh, we went back in 1980, and it was. Uh, we were just amazed how expensive it was. I didn't even have enough money. I had to, I had to get get more money in order to just get us through uh, a few weeks. But at any rate, um, both of those that travel had a big influence on me. It had a lot to do with with how I got interested in international studies. Um, I might mention too that uh, the department that's now called the Jackson School of International Studies began as Asian Studies many, many years ago, and then became Far Eastern Russian studies. And the, the head of it for many years was a man named George Taylor. Uh, and George Taylor wrote a, a book, a, a college textbook called The Far East and the Modern World, which 
uh, was a text used in what was my favorite course in college. Was, uh, I had a whole year course in the history of Asia uh, after I got back from Asia and I was in love with the place. Uh, and uh, so um, the, I actually became extremely close friends with George Taylor uh, eventually, although I didn't meet him when I first went to the University of Washington. It wasn't until, until later when I started the comparative religion program for the, what then was called the Institute for Comparative and Foreign Area Studies, another new name for the Far Eastern Russian Studies. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and uh, you know, so um, those travels had a big influence on me. And then, uh, well, there were other things too. I would say, you know, one of your questions had to do with people who, who had a big influence on me. And I would say the two, the two really big influences on me intellectually uh, and also, uh, I can say spiritually, uh, were uh, Eric Vogelin and Bernard Lonergan. Uh, actually, I became uh, acquainted with Bernard Lonergan's thought earlier, uh, 1970. Uh, I, I bought a copy of uh, his book, Insight. Um, and and I, I had actually continued to be interested in Aquinas. I've been reading uh, Jacques Maritain, and uh, I was not satisfied with the presentation of, of um, metaphysics that, that Maritain made based on Aquinas. And uh, one day I was in the faculty club at the University of Washington uh, before lunch. I was just, they had a black rack of magazines there, and there was a, a Time magazine with a picture on the front of it of a man wearing a clerical collar. And it, it was Bernard Lonergan. Uh, and I, was, I got curious. I picked it up and I looked inside to see what that was about. And it was about this Jesuit theologian, Bernard Lonergan. A, a bunch of his students had uh, organized a uh, conference to talk about his thought. And, and it was written up in time. And it said a little bit about him. Uh, and one of the things that, that is said about, well, but quoted him as saying, that really struck me because it answered a question of mine is he said that the problem with Neo-Thomism was it treated um, uh, Aquinas's metaphysics as, and, and theory of knowledge as though you picked up concepts rather like picking up an object off a shelf. And uh, I thought, yeah, that's exactly the problem with Aquinas. Uh, and, and with, uh, um, well, it's ma mainly with the Neo-Thomist uh, uh, presentation of Aquinas. Uh, and so I, I wanted to find out more about Lonergan. So that got me really deeply into Lonergan's cognitional theory, which has had an absolutely formative influence on the way I think about uh, the way the mind works. And then uh, the next big influence was Eric Vogelin. Now, I, I should mention that between the time I, I, I was reading Aquinas, I was still in the, I was in the English department teaching literature uh, at the University of Washington, and then the comparative literature department as well. Um, but, uh, and I wrote two books. Uh, you asked me, you know, how did I get interested in Beckett? Well, uh, you know, I wrote those two books about Samuel Beckett. Uh, there's actually an accidental factor. I, I, I got interested in Beckett because uh, I think it was about 1958, probably, 
uh, I saw a production of Waiting for Godot at a small theater in Los Angeles, and I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Uh, I, I went back and saw it again. I just thought it was absolutely marvelous. Uh, so he made an impression on me just as an artist. That was all that I knew of him. Uh, but when I was in graduate school, when I, on, for my PhD, and it was in English and French literature, uh, I had to find a dissertation topic that would uh, somehow put English and French literature together. And well, being rather efficient as well as maybe even a little bit lazy, I thought an easy way to do that is use Beckett because he wrote in both English and French. And so I could say, and, you know, some of his books were written in French, some of his books were written in English. Uh, he translated some of his books in French into English. At the time that I was working on it, not everything had come across. So I had to read stuff in both French and English and write about it. Uh, and even compare the text of the translation with the original and so on. Um, and so uh, I thought of that as a dissertation topic to write a, a write my dissertation on his trilogy of novels, uh, uh, Malloy, Malone Dies, and The Unnameable. Uh, so that was just an easy way of dealing with that problem. How do I get my PhD? And then after I did that, I had to try and find something to publish so as to get tenure. Uh, and so I expanded that dissertation and made it the book on, on all of his fiction up to that point. Uh, and I say up to that point because he kept on writing fiction after I wrote it. Um, so that was, that was my first book. Uh, and then having written that, I asked uh, my publisher, would they be interested in a book on his plays? And they said, yes. So I, I wrote a book on his plays. And uh, that essentially got me my tenure. Uh, so to, to a certain extent, that was almost accidental. I mean, he happened to be a convenient subject to write on at a time when I had a job to do, which was to survive in the academic world. Yeah. Now, The Dark Dove was a very different project for me. That, that was a literary work that really was comparative literature in a big way because I dealt with uh, French, English, German, even, even uh, Norwegian ships and uh, authors, uh, and uh, uh, Rilke you know, and Thomas Mann and so on. And I, I, I dealt with all of these people in their original languages. Uh, and I, uh, uh, well, I was, I was very entranced by the subject. And how did I come to, to write that book? Uh, that was another key moment in my life. Uh, in the spring of 1970, who was it? Was this, was it 72? Yes, it was the spring of 1970, 72, yeah. Uh, there, was a, there was a meeting call uh, to discuss the feasibility and desirability of having a program in the study of religions at the University of Washington. They didn't have one. Uh, and the reason they didn't have one was there was a state, con in the state constitution, there was a, a clause prohibiting the use of state funds to, for religious instruction. Uh, and uh, some fundamentalist ministers uh, actually sat in on a course on the Bible as literature in the English department that was taught by uh, a friend of mine, a medievalist. Uh, and uh, 
at the end of the course, they sued the university for teaching the course because he used modern critical methods in studying the Bible. Uh, and they claimed that that was teaching a certain religious point of view. Uh, well, uh, the university defended its course and won the case until it went all the way to the Supreme Court uh, of Washington. Uh, and, the, and they appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, but it declined to hear the case. And the Supreme Court in Washington said, just as a university has a right to teach uh, political science, but may not take a political position, so it can teach theology, but not take a theological position. So uh, that opened up the possibility of having a, a program studying religions. Now, the fact is, we, we, we had pro courses studying religions. Uh, Buddhism and Hinduism were studied in the Asian languages uh, department and uh, in the Near Eastern uh, liter language and literature department uh, they studied Islam. You can't very well study any in those areas if you don't have something about those, those religious traditions. Mm -hmm. uh, so those were there but what we didn't have was anything having to do with either Judaism or Christianity because they were too close to home and couldn't look like proselytizing. Uh, and, but this opened up the possibility of doing it. So a committee was appointed to consider the feasibility and desirability of doing it. Um, and uh, they had this meeting to talk about it. I went to the meeting and I listened. And then on the way home, as I was driving home, I thought, well, what might I be able to contribute to something like that? And I got the idea for a book that would have to do with religion and literature. Uh, approaching literature from the point of view of the phenomenology of the sacred, as uh, Merci Eliade talked about it, and uh, as uh, Rudolf Otto talked about it. Um, and uh, so I, I had the book, The Sacred and the Profane. I hadn't, I hadn't actually read all of it yet, uh, but I, I went home and I, I read it. This was right at the end of the, of the uh, quarter. Uh, at the end of the academic year. And uh, as, I, as I was driving home, I put the book together in my head, taking all these different modern authors that I knew and thinking of ways in which the phenomenology of the sacred was reflected in their work. Uh, and so uh, I had, by the time I got home, I had an idea for a book and I, I read through the sacred and the profane and, and I, I made up my list of authors and I worked on it and I, I wrote the whole book that summer. Um, except for the chapter on Yates uh, and Rilke, uh, which was added the following summer because uh, my publishers uh, asked me to, to add that. Um, but all the rest of it I wrote in that one summer. Uh, and uh, well, the following, during the following year, it was sometime in the, uh, probably around February or March, more likely March. Uh, I was uh, eating lunch in the faculty club by myself, and uh, my medievalist friend, uh, who taught that Bibleist literature class, who was on the committee to consider the feasibility and desirability of having a program in comparative religion, uh, asked me to sit down with me. So I said, sure. And so we sat down, he asked me what I've been working on, and I told him about this book that I was writing. Um, about the sacred, uh, the sense of the sacred as it appeared in modern literature. And uh, as it happened, that committee had been authorized by the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences 
to look for a person who was a specialist in religious studies who could come in and organize a program in the, in the subject. But, and they'd had a search, and they'd found four uh, good candidates. Uh, they were about to try to offer a position, one of these candidates, but uh, they were turned down, uh, or that they, they couldn't do it because the governor of the state, uh, Dixie Lee Ray at that time, uh, had put a hiring freeze on all state agencies, including the universities. They couldn't hire any faculty uh, for a while. By the time the hiring freeze was lifted, all four of their leading candidates had taken other positions in other universities, and they didn't want to go to further down the list. Uh, so uh, they considered looking inside the university to see if there was anybody who would be willing to take the time to organize the program uh, and then turn it over to a specialist from outside uh, the following year if they found somebody. Uh, and so I was asked if I would do that, and I said no. I never wanted to do administration of any kind. I just like being a professor and, and doing my writing. Uh, but then I, I went back to my office and I phoned my wife, and I told her that Dave Fowler had asked me if I, I could consider doing this, uh, this job for them, and uh, that I said no. And she said, are you sure? Because she knew that I, I was interested in religion, and. Uh, um, something maybe I could do. Uh, and I thought a lot about it. And I said, yeah, actually, it might be interesting. Uh, now, part of the irony of this is I, I actually had a sabbatical coming up for the following year. Uh, so I, I could have just gone off and, and been done my own work uh, and uh, taken leave from the university completely. But as it is, I ended up, I said yes, and they, the committee, um, decided to do this, and uh, I ended up giving back my sabbatical year to the university. Uh, but the, re the result of this was that everybody liked what I was doing, the way I, I organized the program, uh, that um, uh, they wanted me to keep on doing it, not hire somebody from outside. So I, I ended up moving from the English department to what then was called the Institute for Comparative and Foreign Area Studies now the Jackson School of International Studies, uh, of which this was, was a program. Uh, it was the, the area study, it was the comparative program. They had area studies of different parts of the world, uh, mostly Asian, uh, but they added this as a comparative thing, hoping that they would become more all-embracing. Uh, and so uh, I ended up moving to the School of International Studies. I have been, uh, it took a little while uh, to organize this thing, but uh, eventually I, the, the dean asked me what he wanted to do, me to do with it, his, my position, what, how it should be defined. And I said, have all my salary comes from comparative and foreign area studies. Uh, and I have a joint appointment in comparative religion and comparative literature. Uh, which had the effect essentially of making me my own boss because I was the only person I was answerable to was the director of the Institute for Comparative and Foreign Area Studies. And uh, they always simply let me do whatever I thought was appropriate. Uh, I had a, a freedom that I never had in, in this really big, very bureaucratic department, the English department. Um, it was a little scary in a way because I was really on my own, 
but uh, on the other hand, it was very liberating uh, and gave me a chance to pursue any interests I, I was interested in. And of course, that will explain one of the reasons why my publishing career became so diverse was I, I didn't have to then just do literary stuff. I could, I'd always had philosophical interests. And then the next big thing that happened was uh, the dean gave uh, me some money to use to bring in visiting lecturers uh, to talk about subjects having to do with religion. This was a, a way of getting the comparative religion program uh, publicized and, and getting it moving. And so one of the people I thought of inviting was Eric Vogelin. I, I had read a book by him. I, I didn't know a lot about his work, but there, were some, uh, there was a graduate student in the history department who was really into Vogelin, um, Tom McPartland. And uh, uh, he loaned me uh, some things by Vogelin to read in preparation for the visit that he made. When he came, I went with him to all of his meetings with people. Uh, he had meetings with different groups in the, the faculty, as well as he gave, he gave some big public lectures. And uh, I, I sort of acted as an intermediary. I explained his thought to people. Even though I haven't read an awful lot of him, I understood how he thought, and I explained him to people. Uh, and uh, one night after one of these meetings, as I was driving him home, he said, we understand each other. Uh, and uh, yeah, I thought we did. Uh, for one thing, you see, the key element in Vogelin's thought is the idea of, of this central human experience that he calls existential tension. Everybody has it, um, but we relate to it in all different kinds of ways. Um, of course, he became interested in how we relate to this in different ways because of his experience with the Nazis, uh, who uh, he thought of as trying to resolve that problem of existential tension by changing the world in a way that would make it, you know, external changes that would that would resolve all tensions um, make it into a paradise um, a jew-free paradise for them and, and of course a german dominated paradise um, which was a crazy idea and he knew it was a crazy idea and of course he um, he, he fled for his life eventually uh, from vienna uh, after the anschluss uh, but um, uh, that's that that uh, central experience the, uh, of the tension of existence uh, was something that I was very well acquainted with from my own experience. And it also was something that was uh, closely connected with that sense of the sacred, which I talked about in the, the Dark Dove book. Uh, and uh, so we understood each other. And uh, after he went home, uh, there was a conference that was uh, organized to talk about his thought and uh, they needed someone to talk about his theory of revelation and so I got a phone call from a man named Ellis Sandoz saying that Vogelin had suggested they ask me to write about his theory, Vogelin's theory of revelation uh, and so uh, I thought yeah okay that's interesting I'll do that that meant I had to read everything he wrote um, which was a huge job uh, that summer uh, so, but it was just writing a, an article, which subsequently was published in the Thomas, uh, Eric Vogelin's Theory of Revelation. Um, I, so I read all of his books. 
and I, that, that was a huge amount of work. I, by this time, I had written three books. So I had an idea about, you know, what, what it takes to write a book, what kind of, how much research you do. And I knew I'd, I'd done enough research to write a book. So when I went to this conference to deliver the paper, I had dinner with him uh, the night before. And I told him I'd done all this work, reading all of his stuff. Uh, how would he feel about my writing a book about his thought? And he thought that'd be a good idea. So um, I did. Uh, and we subsequently saw a great deal of each other because I, I went down to see him. And he lived on the Stanford campus in, in Palo Alto. And uh, my wife's family lived in Hayward. And so every summer when we went down to visit uh, my wife's family, I would uh, drive over to, uh, or and she actually, we had my wife and the children too, who were at that time uh, about one years old and three years old, I think, or, or, or yeah, something like that. I mean, they were really young. Uh, would go over to the Vogelin's house uh, for lunch, and you know, sometimes I go by myself. He and I would have long conversations about what I was writing about, and. Um, so that had a tremendous influence on my thought. Um, so he and Lonergan together, probably the two big intellectual influences. Another one that was became important was René Girard. Um, I came across René Girard. He was actually recommended to me by the man who was the chairman of the uh, History of Art uh, at UW and, and had been chair of uh, Romance Languages. Uh, but I don't think I actually read him until a little later. Uh, but I, when I did, I thought this was really interesting because you see, I had been studying the way people think if they're thinking reasonably, intelligently and reasonably. But uh, Girard talked about the irrational factor. And I knew that this was really important because there's an awful lot of the irrational factor in the world. Uh, and so that was illuminating to me. Uh, and then a friend of mine, a very close friend of mine, who, who actually was also very interested in Vogelin. The reason we met was just at the time my Vogelin book came out, uh, this man, uh, Douglas Collins, who was in the French department, uh, met me and, uh, and because he wanted to find someone who knew something about Vogelin on campus. And uh, so we became very, very close friends. Uh, and uh, at a certain point, it was in 1985, I think, at a time when I was actually, for a year, I, I was the uh, acting chairman of the Romance Languages Department. Um, so I, I, you know, because of my French PhD background, I got involved in that stuff, and, and, and he gave me this book written in French by Ugolion, uh, Amine de Médésir, uh, the, the book that I translated called The Puppet of Desire. I thought it was such an interesting book that it really ought to be in English, so I wrote to his publisher, and uh, uh, the publisher forwarded it to him, and uh, anyway, I ended up uh, translating his book. Uh, and Ugolion and I also became very good friends later, and I made many visits to Paris. Uh, with my wife, and I went the first time really with my children too, because his children are about the same age. We had, a, had really good times together, um, uh, and uh, so that also was a was a, a factor in in the development of my thinking. However, I would say too, 
uh, with regard to that, that when I wrote my book, uh, the, uh, uh, what's, what was it called? The Self-Between, the one about French psychological thought. Uh, it was mainly focused on Girard and his school of thought, although it had a few other people in there, beginning with Lacan and also Marie uh, Balmarie, uh, whom I, I really liked a lot. Uh, but I mainly focused on Girard and Girardians. And uh, after that was published, there was a, a special session held at the American Academy of Religions meeting to talk about the book. Uh, and I found that the Girardians really hated the book. Uh, and I thought they would like it because I was writing about Girard. And Girard liked what I had to say about him. He, my, Girard recommended my, my first book. I had a chapter on it. Uh, the, the first thing I wrote about him was in Philosophers of Consciousness. And he loved that. And he told everybody to read my book. Mm -hmm. um, but this book, it really made them angry because in, in the conclusion, after going through all of that material and talking about it in a way that I thought would satisfy them, uh, I said that nevertheless, there's something else besides mimesis uh, that goes on in the human mind. There's also what Bernard Lonergan called, uh, um, what did he call it? The, 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 the pure desire to know. Uh, or the eros of thought. Uh, in other words, there's a, there's a motivation of the love of truth that can all, that's also a powerful force, only it's, it's a, um, well, it's one that you have to cultivate and you have to listen to. Actually, one of my favorite things uh, from Plato, which I learned about from Bogwin, is that uh, story in um, the myth in the, uh, uh, the laws. Uh, his dialogue, The Laws, about the golden cord uh, that, that pulls us upward, the golden cord of noose, which pulls us upward to the realm of the gods. But uh, it's, it has a gentle pull, and in order to even detect that gentle pull, you have to resist the iron cords of the passions that are ripping us, tearing us in different directions. They're much stronger. Uh, and so uh, you have to practice a kind of inner asceticism in order to uh, resist those pulls and attend to the pull of the golden cord. Uh, well, for me, that was the, the eros of the mind, Lonergan's eros of the mind, or uh, Bogolin's uh, The Love of Truth, uh, that, uh, that uh, the, the golden cord represented. And I, I talked about in the, that in the conclusion, say there is also this, but oh, they hated that because they, they said there's nothing but mimetic desire, nothing but mimetic desire, uh, absolutely no other human motivation. I was kind of really uh, surprised at that. Uh, subsequently, I, I, I still continued to be invited to uh, Girardian things. I, and I went to various ones and uh, they, they you know, I'm friendly with all these Girardians, but um, I didn't identify as a Girardian because of that. I, I, there was more to life than my meeting desire. Uh, much, what's much more important was that, that well, what for, for me is the breath of the Holy Spirit uh, breathed into us from our source, the source of our being, uh, which animates us in the intentional operations when we are able to carry them out properly. That is to, to, to try, attend to our experience, to interpret it carefully, to 
you know, reflect critically on the adequacy of our interpretations, and then to think carefully about uh, how to act in the, the world that we have come to understand through these, this, this careful thinking. Um, well, that's quite a discourse, actually. I've, I've told you about a lot of things that were on your list, really. Yeah, marvelous. Any Thank questions you. you'd like to ask about? Um, well, I guess one that I hadn't thought of, but it just occurred to me now, then um, with what you're saying there about there being more than mimesis, is part of their resistance based on the fact that that might then undermine the, the, necessar the necessity of scapegoat mechanism? Or do you think it's something else? Or does it, does it undermine the, the, the need for the scapegoat mechanism then if there is non-mimetic desire? Uh, well, I do think mimetic desire is real and it's universal. Um, you know, since Girard got this idea, uh, back in the early 1990s, there were some Italian neuroscientists who discovered uh, a, a neurological basis for this, uh, the mirror neurons. And uh, uh, that's that's really well established now. As a matter of fact, one of my colleagues uh, at the University of Washington, uh, Andrew Meltzoff, uh, became a part of the Girardian crowd. Uh, Doug Collins and I once invited him to lunch and told him about the work I I, I had I was doing on translating Ugrelion's book, <clears throat> and uh, uh, he'd not heard anything about this stuff. But subsequently, he became interested in. And he became persuaded that, yeah, this is a very important factor in psychology. Um, so he's, a, he's now a leading figure in, in psychology uh, who uh, deals with this. It, it's very real. Uh, it's just that that's not the only thing um, in our lives. I really do. Uh, I Eventually, I did become baptized, and I did become a Christian. Uh, and uh, I, really, I really do believe in, well, what I talk about extensively in my last book, uh, In Search of the Triune God, uh, I, I really do believe in, in, well, that universal process of, of incarnation, divine incarnation that Ma Maximus the Confessor uh, talked about, that, that it, God created the world in order to incarnate. And God is love. God has created the world in order to incarnate himself, his love, in everything, uh, and um, it's an ongoing process, uh, and the, the, the spirit uh, is the breath of God that love breathed into us, that animates us in our intentional operations, and it's those intentional operations that constitute our human existence. That is, a, the human soul is not a thing, it's an ongoing activity, uh, an activity that consists of these operations of, which are only, only fully genuine and real when, when they're authentic, which is it, it done in openness, uh, openness to a, attention to experience, to careful interpretation and uh, crit critical reflection and judgment and deliberation and decision. Uh, that's what makes 
well, what Lonergan called an existential subject. I don't know if you know his essay, The Subject. It's, it's not a very long essay, and it's really good uh, how you have all kinds of different kinds of subject, beginning with a, uh, uh, something very so rudimentary that it hardly exists, uh, to a, a truncated subject that resists actually developing in, into a, a fully developed subject, but ultimately, um, if it does develop, it becomes uh, what he calls an existential subject, which is someone who can actually operate as an attentive, intelligent, reasonable, responsible human being. Hmm. And, and for me, that's, that's, of course, what it means to live in Christ. Marvelous. Thank you, Eugene. So something um, then that that brings to my mind is in worldview and mind, when you go through the different stages, I think it's uh, via Jasper's, and you talk about subject and object, uh, it precedes what you talk about from Becker and the notion of anime. Can you describe those two things? Because I thought they were really interesting concepts that would maybe help people frame the conversation of um, psychology and theology mm -hmm. a lot more. It's a lot more interesting whenever you look at it that way. And as you said before about the non-rational forces rather than trying to over-rationalize history and pretend that we are something yeah. that we're not. And this history seems to show that we're not uh, a rational being, so-called, in a very crude sense. Um, I wonder if you could speak. We, we can be, but we aren't. That is to say, <laughs> uh, sometimes we even are. Uh, and of course, for me as a Christian, it, it involves the belief that Jesus was. That he actually became a fully developed existential subject and was a reasonable and responsible human being. <clears throat> um, uh, Cardinal Daniel Lu, Jean Daniel Lu, said that uh, he thought that St. Irenaeus thought of Jesus as God's one great success. And I, I tend to think of that, too, that, that um, that's what Jesus means to me, essentially. Uh, a person who is free from all of those irrational pulls because um, of his own inner practice of an asceticism, resisting the iron cords, and his sensitivity to the golden cord, uh, and a, a, a lifelong faithfulness to it, uh, to it that was, um, well, unfailing. Um, but for the rest of us, uh, the iron cords are always there. And uh, that's what, why the things that you were bringing up uh, are so pertinent. Um, the last thing you asked about was anomi. Uh, let me just mention, I think anomi is, is, you've got to connect that with the tension of existence. Um, we, we have this existential tension, which is a, a, most of us, experience it most of the time as a kind of state of anxiety. Uh, I remember one of the first conversations I had with Vogelin uh, when he was here uh, on that, that uh, visit uh, in 1976 was I, I, I talked about the, how I thought of the existential tension as like a, a rubber band, if you, if you put, take a rubber band and, and stretch it between two fingers and then pull away from, from it, uh, you increase the tension. But if you don't, if you relax it, it relaxes the tension. 
And I said that that that's the difference between um, uh, anxiety and an experience of the tension that is free from anxiety. When when you, you it ceases to be free from anxiety, it, it becomes joy. Uh, and then I also quoted to Vogelin that um, those little quatrains, uh, I think they're quatrains, uh, the little lyrics in um, uh, T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, uh, the dove descending breaks the air with, with flame of incandescent terror of which the tongues be declare the one discharge from sin and error. Our only hope or else despair is to be redeemed from fire by fire. That uh, we burn in the fire of anxiety or the fire of love. Uh, and the next quatrain is, who then devised the torment? Love. Love is the unfamiliar name behind the hands that wove the intolerable shirt of flame that human power cannot remove. We only live, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire the fire of anxiety or the fire of divine love. Um, uh, and uh, anomi is, is a, a function of anxiety. Uh, it, it's a feeling that we have, we, we want control, we want a world that's, uh, that we can manage and we can understand. And when something disrupts our picture of things, we feel anomi. Uh, and so we resist that. Uh, Peter Berger is very good on this subject. Well, I like his book, The Sacred Canopy, so much that, that we, we fight to defend our idea, our, the body of ideas that we have that, def, that, that uh, keep anomi away from us. But what, what that does is it shuts out any possible further range of experience that we could notice and take into account. <clears throat> and it shuts out any further possible interpretations we could have that could put together a picture of the world that would be more adequate to, to the full range of experience. <clears throat> so uh, anime is something we have to go through. We have to, we have to let ourselves experience that in order to let our imagined world break up and, and let us rebuild it on the basis of a better understanding. Um, now, going back to, to Jaspers, <coughs> to me, the, <coughs> of course, Jaspers I got interested in just because he got the idea that there was a connection between psychology and worldviews. And that book, uh, I don't think it's ever been translated. It hadn't been translated at the time, but I, I wrote uh, Worldview in Mind. Uh, but I knew that he'd written this book, and I always thought there's got to be a connection. People who sort of, whose minds take shape in certain ways are going to have certain ways of, re, of, of putting together a picture of the world. Uh, and uh, Jaspers actually coined this term differentiation of consciousness, which Vogelin took up. Vogelin actually studied with Jaspers at one time briefly. He, he traveled around at different universities and, <clears throat> and he did spend a little time with Jaspers. <clears throat> I don't know whether he knew him personally well or not, but he did, he did hear him lecture. 
Uh, and uh, I think that the, the, he probably got that, that phrase, differentiation consciousness from him. And for me, the, well, the differentiation of consciousness is the coming to understand the pattern of intentional operations that Lonergan analyzes. Uh, attention, so there's experience, the operation being attention, uh, and then interpretation, uh, which is intelligence, and critical reflection and, and judgment, which are reason, and uh, then, of course, will is the deliberation and decision, uh, to use the old terms, reason and will and so on. But it's, they all consist of these operations. Uh, and when you learn how to perform those operations distinctly, knowing how they work and how they relate to one another, then you can, you can use them carefully. But a compact consciousness does not differentiate them. Um, I think sometimes of, of my mother, when, there was a, 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 uh, a serial killer named Carol Chessman in Los Angeles, where I grew up. Uh, and one day, I remember my mother was looking at a picture of this guy Chessman uh, in the newspaper. And she says, you can tell he's guilty just by looking at him. Uh, and I, by this time, I think I'd started college and I developed a little differentiation of consciousness and I realized that's, you, don't, you, don't, you can't tell he's guilty just by looking at him. Uh, you, you might, he, he probably was guilty. I hadn't much doubt that this guy was probably guilty and I think he was found guilty. Uh, but you, you have to do something more than just look at the guy. But there, are, there are still are lots and lots of people who form their judgments of truth uh, on the basis of a simple perception. In fact, there are a whole lot of people who think the only way we really know reality is by sense perception. That, that's, of course, the basis of that logical empiricism that, uh, um, that uh, well, that I was introduced to at UCLA, which I didn't find satisfactory. Um, so differentiation of consciousness uh, is the crucial thing that enables you to uh, escape from the power uh, of these irrational forces uh, that, that have uh, free reign over a compact consciousness. A compact consciousness doesn't even know that they're there as a rational force is controlling it, and so has no defense against it. And uh, that's what causes a lot of our problems in the world, I'm afraid. Do you think, uh, Eugene, that our kind of positivist culture um, crystallizes that in some way by just focusing on one element and kind of having a like, simplistic map of the world, as I guess? Or what do you think about that? Well, yeah, I do think that. I do think that's true. Yeah, I, I think it requires a. Uh, the development of uh, a differentiated consciousness and the exercise of the capacities uh, for intentional operation of that kind of consciousness in order to uh, to understand the the world well and to live in it responsibly. And uh, but it takes a lot of a lot of work, uh, and nobody's born that way. Uh, as I said in the in worldview in mind, uh, we're all, we are all born as as children, as infants, and we we only gradually develop even to be conscious beings, 
and um, well, you, now what I talked about 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 Keegan's idea of orders of consciousness. You don't get born into a high order of consciousness. Uh, it's something that comes gradually, and it comes as you interact with a world that presents you with questions that you can't deal with with one of the uh, uh, well, uh, with some of the orders of consciousness that he talks about. Marvelous. So um, in that book, you show how a authentic religion, for example, needn't succumb to dogmatism, uh, nor support fanaticism, um, nor be, indeed be consigned to the stages of immature culture. Um, so what did you hope to achieve with that book? Did you hope to change people's uh, manner of thinking and get them to think at those different levels or what was your main? Well, yes, I did. I, I, I don't know whether I have a lot of hope that it's going to be very successful because uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it takes time and it takes a certain kind of a, a spiritual willingness to, to open up, uh, to, to let go of one's defenses, to accept vulnerability. Uh, to uh, a world that uh, uh, is is constantly requiring us to uh, uh, to reinterpret it uh, as we well as new new ways of possible interpretation be, we become aware of we have a tendency to resist them if we've got an interpretation we tend to like it and stick with it and uh, don't even even hear about any other possibilities uh, until uh, something in in our experience makes us aware that, that we can't resist that any longer. We really have to expand our minds in order to be able to uh, take things into account that, uh, that need to be taken into account. So uh, it, it's a slow process and uh, I'm hopeful for the, the long run. Uh, I think humanity has made a lot of progress over the last few thousand years in developing uh, intelligence and, and, and understanding of ourselves. Uh, but we're, if humanity survives, we have a long time ahead of us. Uh, at, the, at the end of the, my In Search of the Triune God book, I, I, I did say that I take a certain comfort from something that C.S. Lewis said uh, in uh, Mere Christianity, that we should remember that we are the early, in a long view, we are the early Christians. Uh, mm -hmm. Marvelous. Um, so I wanted to ask you then about um, orthodoxy. So I go to an orthodox church here in London, and it's uh, very appealing to me, orthodox theology, and um, some, some maximists to confess and people like that I think are so important. Uh, I was just wondering if you could... Gregory Palamas, another favorite of mine. Yeah, love Palamas. I actually adopted his... Um, name for this channel it says in the introduction oh really that was says marcus palamas after him uh, part of my uh, the fact that i'm a teacher they encourage you to use uh, different names for this so that the children don't be looking you up on online or anything so i had to do that so i chose him um i was just wondering could you maybe delineate some of the key divides that you found between what became the more common Western beliefs and practices and the more Eastern, to, not to overuse those terms, uh, I hope I don't overuse them, but um, and what, why did some of those issues concern you so much then? Well, 
that's um, that's a that's a pretty deep subject, uh, and I'll try to <coughs> I'll try to do justice to it briefly. <coughs> the, the the way I would put it is that well, you have to you have to take into account that in any religious community you're going to have people on many different levels of intellectual and spiritual development. Uh, so you can't, <laughs> you can't very well, you can't compare these by simply saying this is, this is this and the East, the West is this and the East is that. There are patterns of thinking that among the more, the people who think uh, with greater intellectual and spiritual development uh, develop that are considerably different in the, those two traditions. But on a certain level, they tend not to be very different. Uh, if, you, if you find any great mix of either Western or Eastern Christians and put them together, you probably find uh, a comparably small number of people who would be aware of the differences between them and could talk about that, uh, you'd find uh, a, a certain small number of people who could even uh, feel very comfortable at interacting with each other on the basis of what they do have in common. Uh, but you could have on, on, on probably the great majority of people, they would have a great deal in common, but it would be on a very low level. Uh, it would be on a very, very mythified, uh, almost superstitious level. And this reminds me of, uh, uh, well, Eliade, uh, I one of the people I invited to the university when I had that money to bring lectures was Eliade. Actually, no, that was later. I was chairman of a committee that, that had money to invite various lecturers. Anyway, I did invite Eliade. And uh, when he came, he gave me a, a little book that he had just published. And in it, uh, he, he talked about <clears throat> something that uh, paralleled something that, that was in a film that I used to show to my uh, introductory Western religions class in the section about Islam. Uh, what was in that film narrated by James Mason, by the way, wonderful voice, uh, uh, was a, a picture of people writing words from the Quran on a plate and then pouring water on it to dissolve them and stirring it up and then feeding it to a sick person because these are the words of life. And uh, Eliade, in this little book that he gave me, talked about how all over the Mediterranean region, there were people writing the words of the New Testament and uh, dissolving them and feeding them to people. So this feeding the words of the Quran, it, 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 all around the Mediterranean base, people were doing the same kind of thing. Whether they were Muslim or, or Christian, they were doing the same kind of thing. Two different religions, but on that level, uh, which was a kind of magical level, uh, they were, uh, they had a lot in common. So um, the reason, I, I actually also was very drawn to Eastern Orthodoxy because I really think the Eastern Orthodox theology uh, has 
what to me is the truth of Christianity. Uh, and that uh, much of, of the Western theology really went astray uh, when they, uh, well, in, very, in various ways. Uh, but, uh, and I, I could go into a lot of this, long talk about that. But um, one of the reasons that I, I did not become, I, I spent about a year going to Orthodox churches, uh, but I found for the most part, uh, they, um, they weren't that different on the average person. Like I remember one, one little old lady uh, asked me, what are you doing here anyway? You're not Russian. Um, and, uh, and, and what they, they thought was a, the way they tended to think about the Christian faith <clears throat> on, on that level was identical with the, the lowest level of the Westerners. Uh, whereas among Westerners, I found a lot of people, who, I think, just don't understand the faith very well, even on a, even the, the, the people who are very intellectually developed. Uh, but on the other hand, they're, they're open to discourse about it. And uh, when I talk with them, they, they usually find what I have to say uh, makes sense. Um, so uh, I have, I've remained a Western Christian, but, uh, well, I, I had a very close friend uh, who was an Eastern Orthodox Archbishop. I say had because he, he died last February, uh, Archbishop Chrysostomus of Etna. Uh, and when I was writing my book, The Triune God, every chapter, as I, as I wrote it, the first draft, I, I would send to him, and, and he would immediately read it and get back to me with lots of comments. Uh, and, and they were all really uh, here and there minor corrections, but for the most part, just very encouraging, enthusiastic comments on it. And uh, one time when he was visiting Seattle, he came and actually, I taught a class on Eastern Christian traditions, and uh, uh, he came and visited the class twice. And the, the, the last time he was here, uh, we went out for coffee afterwards, and I, I asked him, did, did he think, did he consider me to be orthodox? Uh, uh, and he said, yes, he thought, he thought I'm, an, I'm an orthodox Christian in my faith, but I'm a, I'm a heretic in my practice. Uh, mm -hmm. And he hoped that someday I would be a, a, a orthodox in my practice. Uh, as it is, I'm, I'm still a heretic in my practice. I'm an Episcopalian. Uh, but uh, I, I find the Episcopal Church is very, it, the intellectual openness of the Episcopal Church uh, is, it works well for me, and in fact, generally speaking, they're coming around to, under, to understand the difference too, and, and to be willing to uh, uh, reconcile with well, what with the, the tradition, which is the the Orthodox tradition. Mm -hmm. That was the original tradition. That, you know, I, I, by the way, you you did ask, am I working on anything now? I'm afraid I, I'm, I'm <laughs> I don't have enough time to live in which to complete any really big projects. Uh, I happen to have a, a condition called myelodysplasia that, that kills people slowly. Uh, I, fortunately, I have the one that kills me most slowly, so I'll be here a little while longer, but uh, probably don't have time for any more really big projects. But I was asked if I would, for the Cam Cambridge uh, University Press is preparing a Cambridge history of the papacy in four volumes. And in the first volume, they wanted to have a, a uh, chapter on the schism of 1054, and I was asked if I would write write that chapter. So 
Now, that's what I'm working on now. And uh, it's actually, I think I've got it in pretty finished form, really. Um, it'll be a couple of years yet before the book comes out, but I think uh, my chapter is probably ready to go. And uh, in it, I, I, I talk about, you know, what really happened. And, and very, very few people in the Western Christian tradition understand how the East and the West really separated. For one thing, they don't understand the Eastern tradition much at all anyway, but they also don't have a very distorted idea of how they separated. Um, I, I don't think I want to go into detail about that because it's complicated. Uh, but with regard to why, uh, as well as my friend, the Archbishop said, uh, I, I am Orthodox in my faith. And what I think is, is the fundamental difference uh, the way I would put it, although it may seem a little bit disconcerting to some people to put it this way, is that the fundamental direction of thinking in the Eastern Christian tradition, going beginning with Ignatius, uh, not, not Ignatius, but Irenaeus, really, and uh, coming up through uh, people like uh, Maximus and, and, uh, and Palamas, uh, is that incarnation is a universal process and it takes place by emergence. Um, for example, my, my favorite little quotation from uh, Palamas, Topluma uh, Pleroi, Topluma Fesi Pleroi Panta, Panta Chudakai Atheosis. The spirit it is said, fills all things. Uh, and so, deification is everywhere. And, and I, I really, that, that's my fundamental faith, that beginning with the Big Bang and even in every atom, everything has the spirit within it. The God is breathing his life into the whole of creation over a long period of time, in evolution, forms take shape in which this is able to express itself in more and more elaborate ways. In the human being, it can express itself fully in a fully developed existential subject uh, in, well, what Jesus was and what Christ means to me. And to say that we live in Christ means we all live in that possibility of that filial relationship to God, anointed with it as, as um, well, as um, uh, um, Photius said in, in, when the West changed the creed, uh, Photius uh, talked about how in the baptism of Christ, the spirit descends and abides in Jesus, and that that's how we understand the Trinity that from that experience of receiving the Spirit uh, coming into us, forming us into uh, sonship uh, or daughterhood uh, to our source, which we call Father. Uh, so uh, this is something that is happening everywhere to varying degrees. Uh, Jesus, the, the great success, uh, the one who discloses to us what our true life is. Uh, and so for that reason, I think Christ is the true self of all mankind. Uh, 
and I don't mean Jesus as an individual because Jesus is, is the, the instance in which that true selfhood becomes manifest to all of us. Uh, and to the extent that those of us who manage to follow the path that moves towards that uh, move, do really move in that direction, we live in Christ. We all, actually, everybody, I think, lives in Christ. It's just that we, to varying degrees, develop this and, and understand it. Uh, and in some cases, people resist it. So as Lonergan talks about the truncated subject who resists the pull of truth, who resists the pull of real understanding of things, or resists the pull of really taking into account the consequences of one's actions and, 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 and being an acting love rather than uh, pursuing one's self-advantage. Uh, it's, it's a mixed bag everywhere, uh, but uh, for me, the, what the Christian faith means is, is that this is going on also. It's a possibility, uh, which is realized sometimes in some, and which ultimately has a, a des destination beyond this life, I hope. Beautiful. Thank you, Eugene. That's, uh, that's brilliantly put. Um, so just for your own personal witness, as it were, then, um, are there any particularly good fruits that you like to leave in your personal life or your academic life? And, I don't like phrasing it in terms of legacy anymore because I feel it sort of suggests ego, but I know you wouldn't say it in an egotistical way. I was just wondering, um, is there anything you'd like to leave behind that you're prepared of? Well, <clears throat> I would say I'm, I'm pleased that I, I, I really eventually was able to write my last two books, uh, the Worldview in Mind book and the In Search of the Triune God, uh, and I hope that, that over a period of time, some of the ideas in them will be taken up and, and will, um, will help people to understand what I think the Christian faith really is all about. By the way, I ran across a, a uh, quotation uh, day before yesterday, I think it was, by a, um, an Orthodox monk named uh, Sophroni. Uh, you may have heard of him. Uh, he wrote a book called His Life is Mine that I used to, I had to give, I moved into retirement, I had to give away almost all my books, so I don't have it any longer, but um, a quotation that really uh, tickled me because what he said was, you know, he, he thought there hardly anybody has ever really understood the Christian faith yet. Uh, we, still, we still have a long way to go in, in understanding it in its real depth because for the most part, people, well, they assimilate to God, they assimilate the God of our faith to the gods, to the pagan gods. They assimilate Jesus to the pagan gods. So that to say that Jesus is the son of God is a little bit like saying Dionysus was the son of Zeus. Um, and that's there from the beginning. It's there in the Gospels. You get him being treated as though he was, uh, you know, a, a kind of a magical figure who, whose main claim to being the son of God is that he works miracles, uh, which uh, to me is, it, it distracts you at the, at the very best. I mean, if, if you understand it as being mythic, 
uh, it does no no and be in a way of trying to 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 use your imagination to ex express your sense of how he's beyond us and uh, that there's something commensurate about him in his reality with the picture even though the picture is to a large extent imaginative um, that you get in in those stories about him with the walking on water and things like that but but uh, I, I really don't think he's the kind of person uh, that would have gone around doing displays of power because power is the it's one of the, the, the biggest irrational forces in our lives. So they draw the lust for power. Uh, and uh, that has had a tremendous uh, inroad in, into the Christian religion, um, distinguishing between the faith, which in, in its purity is well beyond that, but uh, the religion itself, especially in its Western form, uh, has been very affected by the lust for power, um, the, especially with the kind of ecclesiastical authority that tried to suppress Galileo, for example, uh, or suppress New Testament criticism, for example. Uh, and it's still with us uh, and will be for a long time because it's such a temptation, the lust for power. Mm -hmm. And we, so we, we mythify God by making him into a figure of power. And uh, instead of, uh, you know, recognizing the vulnerability uh, of God in, in his incarnation. Marvelous. Well, I think um, your work offers us hope anyway. And I hope this helps to um, bring more people to read those books. That they're well, doing. I, 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 I would be very gratified. <laughs> Thank you very much for, for trying to do that. <laughs> Thank you very much, Eugene. It's been a, an absolute pleasure to talk to you. God bless you. <laughs> God bless you.